Good evening, everyone. If you'll recall from our last two episodes, we have just discovered streptomycin by investigating compounds generated by soil microbes. Moxman and Schatz were the first to take this approach, but they were certainly not the last. Our first name this week to remember is one Dr. Yelapragada Subarau, sometimes spelled or pronounced Subaro instead, a modification he gave himself to stand out more. In 1923, he departed India as an Indian-born doctor, and he arrived in the United States as a penniless immigrant. His mother had to sell the little jewelry she had in order to finance his venture. However, he carried with him an admissions letter to a little-known Harvard School of Tropical Medicine, a division of the medical school. For the next 17 years, he would demonstrate his brilliance to them over and over again. First, he invented a method for measuring phosphorus content. That led him to discovering phosphocreatine and the especially famous and important molecule adenosine triphosphate, or ATP for short. If you recall from biology class, ATP is the principal source of energy for many cellular processes. We and many other organisms use it in, for example, muscle contraction, nerve impulses, and when forming most other chemicals. Phosphocreatine, meanwhile, helps re-energize ATP that has already been spent. Both of these molecules are used very commonly by many forms of life, but if you'd like some sort of quantitative measurement of how important that discovery is, Subarau's paper has been cited a mere oh, 22,000 times since its publication. His research led to a method for synthesizing folic acid, which culminated in the drug methotrexate, which treats childhood acute leukemia and is still in use to this very day. He contributed to the discovery of vitamin B12, isolating it from the liver, and he found a cure for a common parasitic disease from his hometown. The list of his achievements is honestly near limitless, and it fills pages and pages of the books that I read alone. To quote one biography, Any one of these achievements should have been enough to guarantee him a professorship at Harvard. But Subarau was a foreigner, a reclusive, nocturnal, heavily accented vegetarian who lived in a one-room apartment downtown, befriended only by other nocturnal recluses. Subarau's admission to the U.S. and his stay for a quarter of a century was only possible because he was a physician and a chemist, some of the very few professions that were exempt from the ban on immigration of Indians that existed at the time. The Supreme Court at this point had ruled that Hindus were not Caucasians, and therefore could not attain American citizenship. Despite all that he did, Subarau lived his entire life in fear of deportation for some minor infraction of the law. In 1940, the Alien Registration Act only made things worse, and he had to carry a card bearing his right thumbprint, his signature, and a registration number. Every three months, he was required by law to report his address to the Department of Justice, and on top of all of this, his immigration status also prevented him from achieving tenure at Harvard, despite his incredible list of achievements. Sucks for Harvard, but Subarau realizes he's hit a dead end in academia, and so he departs for the private sector, joining a firm called Liderl as its director of research. While there, he hired Benjamin Duger, a respected plant pathologist who had background in fungi and disease. Together, they were inspired by Waxman's work on streptomycin. Schatz is in there too, of course. Don't sue me. Subarau and Duger begin a global program of soil collection, literally in the middle of World War II. They recruited dozens of soldiers and sailors to bring them soil samples from every continent, which must have been a pretty interesting request to receive while in the military. In 1945, it turns out that collecting soil from the entire world happened to be unnecessary, although they could never have known that. 
A humble soil sample from Missouri yielded a yellow bacteria that seemed to have antibacterial properties. It takes about three years of research, but in 1948, Duger publishes an article detailing the newly discovered organism. It was among the last research that Subarau contributed to. He sadly passed away on August 8, 1948, while in the process of becoming a citizen, since the laws preventing Indians from gaining citizen had just been overturned. Upon his death, he received obituaries from a number of major publications. The New York Herald Tribune designated him, quote, one of the most eminent medical minds of the century, end quote. Subarau himself said, quote, The victories of science are rarely won single-handed. No one man should get the entire credit, end quote. I agree wholeheartedly, but Subarau certainly deserves a lot of credit. Duger names his new bacteria Streptomyces oreofaciens, which translates to the gold maker. This probably was just referring to the fact that the bacteria grew into bright yellow colonies, but it also pretty aptly describes how this bacteria would enrich Duger's employers. The gold maker bacterium produced an unknown substance that had antibiotic effects on a far wider range of bacteria than any other antibiotic thus far found, targeting both gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria. If you'll recall, gram-positive or negative refers to whether the bacteria can be targeted by a specific dye. Penicillin was able to target gram-positive bacteria, while streptomycin could only target gram-negative bacteria. Recall that both of these drugs were considered miracles for the time, and now we have one antibiotic that can target both. This is a huge deal. Duger names the antibiotic substance oreomycin, and it proves effective against a ton of bacteria, and even a couple of viruses. By the end of 1948, experiments on animals and then humans went incredibly well. Ladero spends a ludicrous $2 million, or $21 million in today's money, to send samples to 142,000 doctors across the country. All this investment would absolutely pay off for Ladero, because unlike some of the other drugs we've discussed already, oreomycin was patentable, and on September 13, 1949, it was granted U.S. Patent 2482055. By 1950, just a few years later, oreomycin already accounted for 26% of the entire antibiotic market in the United States. Such success, however, always breeds competition. We're going to backtrack just a little bit back again to 1945. Another company, Pfizer, also launched its own global soil collection program. This one was every bit as ambitious as Ladero's, collecting some 135,000 soil samples. One of Pfizer's chemists was quoted as saying, Quote, we got soil samples from the cemeteries. We had balloons up in the air that collected soil samples that were windborne. We got soil from the bottoms of mine shafts and from the bottom of the ocean. End quote. Just four years later, over 20 million tests were run on those soil samples. Also, like Ladero's work, the most promising discovery came from land around one of their Midwest plants. Apparently, the central United States is just chock full of antibiotic potential. One Alexander Finley discovers a yellowish bacteria that seems at first identical to that discovered by Liddell, but turns out to be a different organism. They dubbed the bacteria Streptomyces rimosis, which is a lot less flashy than Goldmaker. Rimosis instead translates to leaking or full of holes, which is a lot less cool. Come on, Finley, I'm sure you could have done better than that. Despite the lackluster name, the new compound also had effects on both gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria, as well as a number of fungi and viruses. When it came time to name the new antibiotic, Pfizer's president, James McKean, christened it teramycin. 
Quote, I wanted a name connected with the Earth, and one that could be easily recalled by doctors and scientists and people in general, because it came from the Earth. End quote. Fair enough, I suppose. As per usual, the next step is clinical trials conducted at Harlem Hospital, which showed its effectiveness and safety. One quick wrinkle, though, before Pfizer could keep going. At this point, Pfizer knows more or less nothing about the structure of teramycin, and for all they know, it could be the exact same compound as oreomycin, which would open up the possibility of lawsuits. They needed to figure out exactly what teramycin was, which required a deep analysis of organic chemistry. In labs these days, you can actually plop a sample in a machine and figure out in an afternoon the molecular structure of something and have a computer spit out a nice 3D model for you to look at. But at the time, we did not yet have computers and imaging technology like we do today. This means that to figure out the molecular structure of a compound, you have to look at all the known facts of a molecule and deduce its structure based on those properties. This includes factors of a massive range, including its melting and freezing temperature, acidity, reactions to other molecules, the speed at which such reactions and changes occur. Pfizer knew that they needed the best, and so they hired Robert Burns Woodward, a prodigy whose list of achievements goes far beyond just figuring out teramycin. Over his lifetime, he contributed to about 200 papers, took a Nobel Prize home, and was the first to synthesize cortisone, one of our primary stress hormones. Cholesterol, the lipid that you probably know from nutrition facts, strychnine, the poison, chlorophyll, the molecule responsible for plants being green, quinine, the main preventative medicine for malaria, and vitamin B12. Whew! He was also the first to demonstrate the beta-lactam structure of penicillin, which, if you'll recall, was the weird ring shape that no one expected, and was confirmed by X-ray crystallography a few months later. Woodward was widely known as a lover of puzzles, known never to miss a single New York Times daily crossword puzzle. For Woodward, teramycin was just another one, and supposedly he took a large piece of cardboard, wrote down every fact that they knew about teramycin, and then by thought alone deduced the correct structure for oreomycin and teramycin. Both compounds were built around a four-ring structure, which led to the umbrella term tetracyclines, which is what this class of drugs is known as today. However, luckily for Pfizer, oreomycin and teramycin just barely differed by literally one atom. Oreomycin contained a single chlorine atom that was missing from teramycin, while teramycin instead contained one extra oxygen atom that was missing from oreomycin. I've included two photos in the description if you'd like to see the very slight difference in the molecules. Medically, these two molecules are functionally identical, both preventing the bacteria from manufacturing vital proteins, but that one atom makes a world of difference when it comes to patenting. Pfizer could patent teramycin since it was a distinct molecule for oreomycin, and in 1949 they did. Just five months later, it would be approved by the FDA for use. With their new weapons in hand, Pfizer and Liddell began an epic struggle for dominance in the antibiotic market. In 1950, when oreomycin was already claiming a quarter of the antibiotic market, Pfizer's sales team was a paltry eight people. As soon as they received FDA approval, they sent out telegrams to 800 drug wholesalers, offering very steep introductory pricing discounts. Just a year later, Pfizer's army of salesmen had swelled to 100 people, and just two years later, that grew to 300, with medical students even being recruited to sing its praises as well. Pfizer and Liddell continually pour more and more money and resources into this fight, hosting sampling campaigns, spending on lavish entertainment budgets, and by 1952, Americans were spending some $100 million on antibiotics, or about a billion dollars in today's money. Our two contenders were neck and neck, with Liddell taking 23% of the market share and Pfizer claiming 26%. 
To put all this money in perspective, more money was being spent on antibiotics than on all the patent medicines, toothpastes, mouthwashes, vitamins, botanicals, and sulfa drugs combined. All this competition meant that both companies sought also to find the mechanism by which the new drugs worked. In 1952, our friend Woodward was still hard at work and proved that the tetracycline, the four carbon rings, in the two drugs was what had the medical effect, which is why the two worked more or less identically, despite the slight structural difference. Pfizer and Liddell both rushed to patent tetracycline, the basic molecule without the extra oxygen or chlorine, but they weren't alone. Pfizer was first, filing for a patent in October 1952. Liddell wasn't far behind, filing in March 1953. But a new challenger approaches. In September, just a few months later, Bristol Laboratories and Hayden Chemical, older producers of penicillin, also figured out how to make tetracycline and filed for patents, both on the molecule but also on their different methods of synthesizing it. All this feuding led to, with some hindsight, a hilarious mess. Pfizer was the first to claim a patent on tetracycline in the molecule, but they didn't actually have a process to make it without starting with oreomycin, which if you'll remember is what Ladaryl owns. In other words, in order to make tetracycline, Pfizer would have to buy oreomycin from Ladaryl and then make it from that. Meanwhile, Ladaryl could only produce tetracycline by using one of the processes that Bristol and Hayden had patented. Bristol had a method of making tetracycline, but needed a license for the molecule itself, which Pfizer had already claimed. Eventually, all these companies got together, and they were like, screw it, and they issued licenses to each other for everything that they needed, and all of them got down to the business of selling tetracycline, without the extra oxygen or the chlorine atoms that had been present in oreomycin or teramycin. In 1951, Ladaryl's oreomycin was 41.5% of the broad-spectrum market. Just five years later, in 1956, it was only 12%. Acromycin, Ladaryl's name for tetracycline, was 66% of broad-spectrum sales, and accounted for some $43 million in their profit. Every other player was selling tetracycline too, although each under different names, like Steklin, Panmycin, and Polycycline, and like Ladaryl, was profiting richly. Tetracyclines were, and still are, big business, but also a big deal. They were the first antibiotics that could hit gram-positive and gram-negative bacteria, and as a result, they quickly took over the antibiotic market from the earlier beta-lactams and aminoglycosides, like penicillin or streptomycin. Next week, we'll keep going through the soil and discover another new class of antibiotics that is maybe not as revolutionary, but still deserving of our attention. As per usual, thanks for listening. If you feel like it, reach out at our Facebook page, website, or my email, all listed in the show notes like usual. If you really want to do me a favor, though, leave me a review on wherever you're listening. Good reviews will help me find more listeners, and bad reviews will make me better. As always, thanks to Angie Lee for our logo, my friend Jojo Tang for editing, Muse Open for our theme music, and to you for spending these precious minutes with me.